Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Broadband.Money. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Fiber for Breakfast, um, Fiber Fiber Broadband Association. And we are now in our sixth episode of 2022. But before we kick off, I'd like to thank our sponsors for Fiber for Breakfast, including our platinum sponsor, Broadband.Money, our gold sponsors, Jonar Tools, Millennium and MyBundle.tv, and our silver sponsor, STL. You know, the Fiber Broadband Association submitted comments on the NTI bead program on Friday, along with 760 other commenters. And the key takeaway from our 29 pages of comments are the following. You know, we have the opportunity to bring fiber to unserved and underserved areas. Therefore, we should make all fiber projects priority broadband projects with a preference for higher speeds, greater experience, and financial wherewithal. We need to ensure program is successful by bringing fiber as far as possible unserved and underserved areas. And the process needs to be uniform, objective, and transparent with quantifiable metrics to ensure ensure the success of this process. You know, our broadband infrastructure playbook that we've been developing with industry research firm Cartesian is shaping up nicely. And we should be in position to release that at the end of the month. So you're going to want to keep an eye out for that. You know, NTI is going to be holding five IIJA broadband program pre NOFO technical assistance webinar every couple of weeks beginning March 9th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, NTI will post the registration information on Broadband USA website under events. The FCC voted unanimously on Thursday to press forward with a new plan that will require ISPs to offer broadband nutritional labels, which will disclose an internet plan's price, speed, data allowances, network management practices. Uh, Comments on what should be included on this new broadband labels are due to the FCC in a month. The FBA will be filing in this proceeding as consumers will definitely be looking for fiber on any nutritional label. On the Hill, Gigi Som will have her second nomination hearing next Wednesday for the fifth seat at the FCC, but she cannot be cleared out of committee until Senator Luan's back. So as a result, we expect the 2-2 split at the FCC to continue for the next few months or so. Also next Wednesday, NTI will be testifying in front of the House Communications Subcommittee This hearing should reveal some very interesting information on NTI's direction with the broadband notice of funding opportunity. You know, last week, Commerce Secretary Raimondo testified in front of the Appropriations Subcommittee about the importance of fiber and the types of projects they want to see built with the BEAD funding. That brings us to the topic of this morning's Fiber for Breakfast. Today, we're going to be discussing beware the loudest, promising the largest what history has taught us about rural connectivity. You know, last week we had the tremendous opportunity to spend time with Keith Gabbard, the CEO of the People's Rural Telephone Cooperative, PRTC, and we discussed a 
One traffic light town in Eastern Kentucky with some of the fastest internet in the USA. You know, during the session, I received numerous comments from you, our audience, along the lines of, thank you, Keith. This reminds me of why we're in this business. And you know, Keith shared a heartwarming story on how fiber has created 1,200 new jobs in McKee, Kentucky, and citing an example of a Facebook employee moving to McKee so he can work in Silicon Valley remotely and finally be able to afford his own home. You know, it's really wonderful to see PRTC set up the virtual living room for veterans and the other ways that fiber has really improved the lives in Eastern Kentucky. You know, today we're gonna to continue building on that theme of advancing rural America with Dr. Christopher Alley, the author of Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity. Today's topic is Beware of the Loudest, Promising the Largest, What History Has Taught Us About Rural Connectivity. Dr. Christopher Alley is an Associate Professor of Media Studies at the University of Virginia, where his research focuses on broadband and telecommunications policy. He is author of a new book, The Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity, and has testified before the US Senate regarding broadband funding. He has written on the topic of broadband policy for the New York Times, The Hill, Realtor Magazine, Washington Monthly, and Digital Beat. So welcome, Chris. And for audience, please type any questions as go, and we'll work those into the discussion and the Q&A. With that, I'd like to pass it over to um, Chris. Great. Well, well, thank you so much, Gary, for having me on today. And, and good morning to everyone. Um, I, first of all, I am just so excited that y'all had uh, Keith on for your last show. I mean, I am a huge fan of the work that he and PRTC are doing in, um, in Kentucky. And in fact, interviewed Keith for my book. Um, and and uh, uh, the story of the PRTC has made it as part of Farm Fresh Broadband, um, which is pretty exciting. What I want to talk about is is this. So it, in, in March 2021, President Joe Biden said that broadband is the next electricity. And this quote, this little four words, um, five words, one, two, three, four, five words, um, has been on my mind for a while, thinking about things like, what does this actually mean? What does it imply? And what does it actually commit us to when we say that broadband is the next electricity? And I think that in order to kind of understand the significance of this sentence, um, we need to look back to history, right? How did we connect this country in the 30s and 40s with electricity, particularly rural and remote areas, which we know are the hardest to reach um, and most expensive um, uh, communities for, for kind of current, current connectivity? Um, Trish, can we do the, the next slide, please? Thank you. Uh, so a couple of takeaway points. Um, you know, I like to I like to like preface what you should be taking away from any time I give a give a chat here. Uh, so obviously we need you know what has history taught us? It's taught us about the importance of a coordinated federal strategy for rural connectivity. It's taught us about the importance of local, regional, and cooperative providers in rural and remote areas. It's taught us that if all we do is favor one type of company, one type of entity we're gonna end up with broadband deserts and broadband oasis, right? So we need to make sure that solving the digital divide, at least when it comes to infrastructure, is an all hands on deck approach. And last but not least, when we say something like broadband is the next electricity, we have to remember that at the end of the day, broadband is actually in fact, not about technology, not about companies, not about connectivity, broadband is about people. And I think that's so cool about what, what PRTC is doing in Kentucky and McKee, is reminding us on the ground that at the end of the day, broadband is about people. 
So how do we get policymakers and lawmakers and elected officials to remember that when they're passing these, these laws? And particularly now that we're looking at the largest federal investment in telecommunications in this country's history through, um, through the Infrastructure Act and particularly with the B program, which is focusing on infrastructure. Um, and I, I am so excited to, as a policy scholar, to delve into the 760 plus comments. Um, I think it's going to make some really wonderful weekend reading this weekend. Um, Trish, could we do the, the next slide, please? Uh, so as, as Gary said, and this is a little bit of self-promotion and forgive me for this. Um, this is, oh, there it is, there it is. Um, uh, you know, everything I'm drawing from today uh, uh, was part of research for the my new book, Farm Fresh Broadband, The Politics of Rural Connectivity, uh, which was released in September. Um, and, and you can pretty much get it anywhere. Um, uh, it's published by MIT Press, available at Penguin Random House, Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, all the places you might wanna, wanna go. Um, Trish, if we could do a next slide. I know I'm working really fast, but I wanna get to the good stuff. So the book, a little bit of a spoiler alert, is an analysis of federal and state policies regarding the subsidization, deployment, and regulation of broadband to rural communities. And I like to say that the, the book is both a story of failure and a story of promise. It's a story of failure in that federal policies have largely failed to connect this country with what with with which what was promised, right? Universal connectivity. That hasn't happened yet. This is why we need a $42.5 billion infrastructure investment uh, in broadband. So it's, it's a story of how did this happen? How did we end up failing? And yet it is also equally a story of promise and a story of successes. And here again, this is where PRTC uh, becomes so valuable. Um, as a lesson and as a role model. Uh, so what have communities done? What have companies done? What have providers done to connect their communities kind of in light of, of some of these larger uh, failures of, of federal policymaking? Great, so uh, what, you know, I like to say like, what did I do to come to these conclusions in my book? Well, uh, my bread and butter is I'm, I'm a communication policy scholar. So I read a lot of policy, roughly about 15,000 pages worth of policy, um, including, you know, filings to the FCC and, and, and USDA and, and, um, and NTIA. Uh, I did a lot of interviews, 90, over 90 in-depth interviews. Uh, you know. And then uh, the hallmark of this whole thing was what, this is my hound dog, Tuna, uh, what Tuna and I called the rural broadband road trip, where we spent a summer driving around the Midwest, talking to providers and local officials and activists and, and, and people in grocery stores and farmers to learn about how broadband is lived in everyday life, how broadband policy is lived in everyday life. So we called this we, I keep saying we because it was Tuna and I on this on this roadshow here. Um, we call it an example of lived policy. How are policy decisions actually lived on the ground? Um, and 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 hopefully it's made for a compelling, um, a compelling read. Um, and, and one of the things I had to do in order to research for this book is of course go back to history because this, this idea that broadband is the next electricity, you know, President Biden may have said it in five words, but it's something that is often invoked when we talk about connectivity, right? This idea that, well, we did it before, how do we do it again? Great, so it all goes back, um, and I, I'm sure this is very familiar to a lot of folks on this call, because the other cool thing is that, you know, when I was doing my interviews, a lot of people said, oh yeah, I remember, I remember, or my parents were part of a farm that was connected by what was called the Rural Electrification Administration, the REA, which came into being in 1935, which was made permanent in 1936. It's of course one of those New Deal agencies of FDR. And it was charged with connecting 
rural and remote areas. And in that at that particular moment, it was largely farms, right? Farm represented rural in, 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 in the United States. And what they did was, was two things that I think are, are really important takeaways. One, um, the REA encouraged the formation of local cooperatives, right? So it went to communities and it created these cooperatives and then funded them through loans, right? It had this massive loan um, portfolio. The other thing it did was it encouraged the household adoption of electricity. So they weren't just provide, you know, creating electric utility companies. They were actually going in and it was something called the REA Circus, which I, I just think is super cool. And they would set up these tents and they would teach people about electricity. And again, it reminds me so much about what the type of work Keith is doing in McKee, Kentucky, which is working with people to not only get them connected, but to develop those digital skills that are so absolutely crucial. Because I think one thing we all know is that a broadband connection is useless unless people actually use it. Right? So there's there's both the need for that infrastructure deployment and the need for the everything else around digital inclusion. That's so important. And I think that's a really important history lesson. The REA did this, which is super cool. Um, the other thing it ended up doing was bypassing the large provider. At that time, it was AT&T, and they ended up going around AT&T, or sorry, I wasn't, I'm talking about power, excuse me. Uh, so they, they bypassed the big power companies and went specifically to local communities, because at that time, big power, so to speak, wasn't interested in rural communities. They weren't interested in providing service to rural communities because there wasn't a customer base, and we kind of see that same thing um, in, in rural communities today, rural and tribal and remote communities, right? The market is not there. It needs help. Um, and th that help can come in the form of federal policy. So the REA was tremendously successful. El electricity, electric connection went from 33% in 1940 in rural America to 96% in 1956, hugely um, successful. And it was so successful, in fact, that the REA was put in charge of rural telephone connection in 1949, the Telephone Act. Um, and again, it was tremendously successful. And they went back to this model that was so important, which was championing communities, championing community connection, funding community connection. Um, and I think that's, that's a really great reminder as we go forward is that connectivity, rural, remote, tribal connectivity should never be left alone to one player or one entity or one type of entity, right? This is gonna take an all hands on deck approach. And, and a little spoiler for, for a line from my book is that I argue that local broadband is the best broadband. Right, local providers serving local communities. Um, so that's you know again one of the one of the arguments. Um, a little plug maybe for the for chapter four of the book. Okay, so you jump ahead, right? We were tremendously successful in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s with with rural electricity and rural telephony through the REA, which of course eventually became part of the USDA and is now the successor is now called uh, the Rural Utility Service. Then we get into you know 80 years later. Uh, were you know the national broadband plan was uh, was written and and reviewed uh, in in 2010, and one of of course the major things is how do we reinvent the high cost fund at the FCC uh, to fund broadband or what was broadband at the time right so uh, USAC and the FCC developed the Connect America Fund program which later became the ARDOF program, and here is where we start to see things go off the rails a little bit with a hit with history right. Um, we, we saw in that first CAF 2 from 2015, rather than privileging a lot of different companies, a lot of different types of entities, we see a reliance on these 10, 10 largest companies. We see a baseline of, of 10 megabits per second down one megabit per second up, which is being used as a ceiling rather than a floor. 
And keep in mind, when we were electrifying households, we didn't do it by the kilowatt per hour, right? We didn't say, well, well, this is good enough uh, for, for a rural farmhouse, but you know, an urban, an urban uh, Manhattan uh, apartment gets more, right? And yet, when we started to do it for broadband, we started to create these, these, these ceilings that companies ended up just hitting, right? And of course, it also allowed for the proliferation or the continued reliance on DSL, which you know, even in 2015 was not, uh, was not up to snuff. Um, and what we saw is the connection of only the most populated rural areas. So we saw these islands of availability, something um, that, uh, that um, a scholar, uh, uh, Grubasek, uh, coins island of availability, and everything else was kind of left out. Jump ahead five years, we've got art off, and we're kind of seeing the same things happening. And this is where I say, you know, it's privileging the largest companies, the loudest companies, the familiar providers. And of course, we know this lack of due diligence that occurred, right? Parking lots got funded, traffic circles got funded, parks got funded. Um, and, so, and so we're seeing kind of the worst parts of, of the history of connectivity repeat itself um, here with between uh, CAF2 and off. And this is why I think it's so important to learn what worked in history. And when we go back to that broadband is the next electricity, why it is so very important. All right, so lessons for the Infrastructure Act and Bead Program. And I know uh, that uh, uh, the Fiber Broadband Association, as Gary said, just submitted the NTIA comments, and I'm really excited to read them. But kind of my own thoughts, right, um, on, on what we can learn from history here. First is that the FCC broadband funding strategy is defined what I call the politics of good enough, right? Just getting good enough something out there. So 10.1 was good enough in 2015, 25.3 is good enough now. DSL and satellite is good enough. High prices are good enough, right? We have to remember that rural Americans pay more than 30% more for their broadband subscriptions than urban ones, right? So it's, it's defined by this politics of good enough. Second point is that, you know, just to reiterate, when we take people out of broadband policy, it becomes about politics. So how do we craft policies? And this is, you know, particularly important for the NTIA going forward to reinsert people back into broadband policy. Because right? I think that's something that we can learn from history, right? The REA didn't just fund companies, they went out and worked with communities. How do we kind of galvanize that kind of community-centered broadband connectivity? And last but not least, again, we need to make sure that history does not repeat itself. We need to remember uh, the importance of an all hands on deck uh, approach to solving the infrastructure aspect of the rural urban digital divide. And I'm seeing some really positive developments coming out of Treasury and USDA, um, particularly around eligibility and speed thresholds, right? Thinking about what are what is connectivity needed in five years rather than what was needed yesterday. And I, I'm, I'm seeing some positive um, uh, encouraging results coming out of Treasury and, and USDA for that. So maybe some learning opportunities for NTIA. And I know I'm getting short on time. So Trish, we can uh, we can skip. Yeah, I think I might conclude it here because I have some some questions that we all could answer, but I know we have only got half an hour. And, and so I figured I would rather have a discussion than have you all just kind of continue to listen to me. So thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to share some of my thoughts and, and talk about my book and really looking forward to the conversation. Chris, thanks so much. The, um, you know, I can't, you know, I, I always think of broadband, same thing as like uh, electricity, you know, why would we, you know, if we can pull um, electricity to all Americans, you know, 85 years ago, why can't we pull fiber to everyone? So it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, because you live on a farm, you know, we didn't sit there and say, oh, we'll drop a generator off or a 
solar panel or some kind of paddle wheel that you can put in your creek that generate electricity the way we do now. Uh, so some of the comments that came in, um, one is saying, I'm concerned about a letter that several influential U.S. senators sent to NTI on February 4th because of the undefined term unserved in the letter, non-fiber broadband providers could leverage this letter to lobby for keeping rural America at 25.3. And that's not a long-term benefit for rural America. Please uh, share your thoughts on how we could steer this conversation to, to fiber as the solution. I mean, that's that's a great question. And I, I, I point to something um, from a couple of years ago that the NRECA, the, the, the Rural Electric Cooperative Association said in one of their filings, which is that you know, I'm paraphrasing here that 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 policy can be technologically neutral, but it mustn't be technologically blind. And and by that, I you know, we need to create thresholds, particular, you know, if we're going to continue to rely on speed as a definition of broadband, we need to make sure that those speeds are 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 forward looking. I think this is where the you know the fight right now is going on at at the political level. I think we've all finally hopefully agreed that broadband is not a luxury or a, a maybe or a nice thing to have, but it is a necessity. It is a utility, um, particularly during and hopefully soon to be after the COVID nineteen pandemic, which demonstrated the crucial importance of broadband. Um, to and 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 we all know this. So so we've we've hopefully won that battle. In Congress, the next battle is going to be what exactly is broadband, and this is where I am so concerned. Uh, like, like the person who wrote the question around um, whether or not this politics of good enough is going to uh, kind of pervade the next generation of broadband funding. Because my concern here, you know, is if we don't do a good job thinking about and planning for, you know, future-proof uh, um, connectivity, then we're going to end up needing to spend another. 80 billion, 65 billion dollars in in 20 years when we realize that so much of the country is unconnected and underconnected. So this is the political fight going on, and and um, I think this is also where we're seeing um, maybe a lack of awareness of from our elected leaders about what the intricacies of broadband and broadband policy. And this is intimidating, right? Like it's both technical and technological, and 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 so I think making sure that our elected officials are aware of 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 the, these kind of intricacies and, and you know and and these definitions I think are also going to be really important. We need to go on a bit of an education campaign with our elected leaders because just because they're writing the policies doesn't always mean they know what's kind of going on on the ground, right? Um, and so it's not it's not a great answer, um, but certainly recognizing that this is going to be a problem going forward. You know, I had um, Chris McLean on a couple of weeks ago from RUS, and one of the things he said that really stuck with me is that um, RUS. They're, they fund infrastructure where the FCC funds the promise of a level of service. And so what he said is that even when speeds were 4.1 or 25.3, that 90% of our U.S. borrowers built fiber networks. Whereas yeah. on the CAF programs you saw is when your promise of getting to 10.1 or 4.1 or 25.3, that's the goal. So you've set up the rules so that the people that you hand the money to are just going to barely meet, uh, you know, that goal. The, and the legal you know, requirement. As a former equipment provider, it was great, right? You could fund the same sports over and over and over again. Oh yeah, yeah. Keep going, and but it's not great, you know, great deal for the you know U.S. Um, you know, our all Americans taxpayers to keep paying for things over and over again. Um, Absolutely. So one of the things that questions came in is so 
not sure throwing more money at the problem is the answer. Do you see any evidence that the newer federal programs have learned from the disappointments of earlier programs? Um, what about reducing, eliminating the overlap of mission of federal agencies and programs? I mean, great, great, great question. Thank you so much for that. Um, two, two thoughts here. Um, one is, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right that throwing more money at a problem without changing the parameters of the problem is going to be a problem. That's a lot of problems I just said there, right? But again, let's look at what, what how USDA is through reconnect is influencing the broadband policy conversation. I mean, they're saying, you know, day one, I believe it's 120 scalable to 100, 100, or might even be on day one, 100, 100. So already by those thresholds are eliminating certain technologies that should no longer be there, period. Um, the other thing they're doing is thinking, you know, very, and Treasury is doing the same thing around, around who is eligible, making sure that there is language that not only does not discriminate against certain providers, you know, municipal providers, cooperative providers, local providers, but but actively encourages, um, uh, for instance, public-private partnerships, which I really see as, as a crucial element. The other thing is we've got kind of three cooks in the kitchen right now. We've got RUS, NTIA, and the FCC. Um, and, and the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 also uh, passed something called the Interagency Cooperation Act. I think it was consolidated appropriation. Um, and that that forces better cooperation between these three agencies. And this is actually something I talk about in my book is that these three agencies are do not typically get along. Um, so I think one of the things we need to do is, is not only make sure that the the entities winning grants are held accountable, grants and loans are held accountable to their promises. And it, you know, the FCC is trying to clean up RDL for that exact reason. But we also need to make sure that that USDA through RUS, NTA, and FCC are held accountable through this interagency cooperation. And I think that's going to be something that's, you know, often is swept under the under the rug is the fact that these are there are three agencies who have a hand in shaping the next generation of broadband connectivity. And we need to make sure that A, they're sharing things, um, particularly, you know, sharing, sharing vital information, sharing mapping, for instance. Um, but also making sure, uh, you know, that that the programs are working together. 99%, for instance, of, of RUS's telecommunications loan holders also subscribe uh, to some form of US, uh, USF funding. We need to make sure these two programs work together and rather than eliminate them. Um, you know, one of the one of the major concerns for RDOF, for instance, was that if you held RUS money, you were no longer eligible. Um, I'm not sure that's the great, the best way to go. What kind of consultations were there? So I absolutely agree. We need to make sure that both award winners and these agencies are being held accountable. Thanks, Chris. One another question came in and says, your comment, local broadband is best broadband. Is, uh, is that saying that broadband should be deployed in rural America the same way electricity was deployed using local cooperatives? Uh, I, I, I am not gonna prescribe one way but I do think that local account, local provision has proven to be more successful in rural communities than, na than a national provider. There's an accountability level there, which is really important. But the other thing is I find that local providers, not just cooperatives, but cooperatives are key providers in this space. Um, they, they look at broadband as an investment in the community rather than demanding that quarterly return right so they're look they're they're willing to take a much longer return on investment and i think that's why you know 
Chris McLean can say that so many borrowers of RUS programs were deploying fiber when they didn't need to deploy fiber because they see it as that long-term, that long-game investment in the communities. And I'm not seeing the largest providers have that same individual community commitment. So this is why I, I do argue that um, that in you know the the stories that I profile in my book that it's been the, a local provider or at least a regional provider um, that has made the commitment to that that particular community or that county or that that region. Um, so that's where the line local broadband is the best broadband comes from. You know, and certainly anytime I'm with a rural electric co-op, you know, you go to lunch and every single person in the restaurant knows the general manager. They see him at the baseball yeah. games. They, you know, the kids go to school with his kids. I mean, so there is a level of accountability that, you know, unlike any other place, right? Because, um, and, and, and that is not, that is, that is something that cannot be discounted. The fact that you were going to see, you know, the, the president of your broadband company, which might also be your electric company at a baseball game and say, you know, Hey, so-and-so like, you know, why is my service being delayed or why, you know, why, why is it static or why don't I have service right now? What is going on? That, that interpersonal relationship, I think is so important as the foundation for, for community, um, community connectivity. You know, that was just in far Texas at the very tip, you know, halfway through Mexico and uh, a border town where all the produce comes over from Mexico. And they were the least connected community in the US and they just launched fiber to every um, home, 22,000 homes in their community that they're gonna connect in the next year. And so Dr. Hernandez, the mayor has really, you know, done a great job of, and they're offering it. If you have kids in school, you get free broadband while your kid's in school and you wow. get half a gig for 25 bucks and a gig for symmetric for a hundred bucks, or no, excuse me, 50 bucks. So it's super cheap. It's really yeah. affordable to everybody. So I've seen, you know, a promise of municipality, great. But also, you know, like Tony Thomas was at our conference last year on Windstream. He talked about public-private partnerships. And so I've seen um, the incumbents aren't acting the way they used to. I mean, I've seen them come around and say, how can we work with communities and be able to get, so, uh, you know, I, I would not discount a experienced service provider. So I think there's a lot of models that can work here. And you know well and and that's why i you know i don't want to prescribe one or the other and that's why i think that in the in the past funding mechanisms when we've only provided service or funding for incumbents that was a problem um we need to make sure that 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 all eligible entities are eligible to receive to receive this money and i agree i mean i think public-private partnerships are fantastic and when i work with counties i mean most times counties are willing and able to partner with with anyone who will provide the service that they want um, oftentimes in the most rural and remote, it has been local and regional companies rather than national providers. But as you say, I mean, the incumbent providers are, are, are changing and looking more to at the kind of community commitment model. Um, and which is really, I think, encouraging to, to see. Well, Chris, I could talk to you all day. Um, so thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and, um, your research. Um, so I look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. We're going to be discussing construction digitalization, digital transformation of the metaverse era with Sabu uh, Mayepin of EC Site and Sean Adams of AFL as they discuss the construction digitalization that can aid in addressing many of the challenges and inefficiencies in the deployment of optical networks. So you're not going to want to miss that. Thanks, Chris, again. Loved having you on and uh, see everybody next week.